Yeah. Well, that was fun. I, I told my wife, I said, I don't know what's going to happen. You never know. Hey, I'll say this, and then I'm going to move on because we had a, a message today that I'm excited about. Hey, when God speaks to you, get in the habit of not putting it off. Cold water, embarrassment, whatever stands in the way of you obeying God wherever it would be in your life. One of the most valuable things in the world is to hear the voice of the divine God and then obey. So what a day. Thank you guys for the grace of that moment. <laughs> and I hope that you, you know, as you get to watch Eli, you will see that although Eli's four and a half, the spirit of God within him is not four and a half. Fully grown spirit, eternal. And so we're looking forward to seeing some, some great things out of our children as Stacy continues to, to have our children's ministry move forward here. Now we're in the middle of the Luke series. You guys know this? Most of you know this, it's a two and a half year series and we're right down to the last month and a half. We've been with Jesus all over as he's taught and healed and, and upset religious people and he's in Jerusalem with his, with his disciples for the Passover Holy Week and we are down to the wire. Tonight he gets arrested, but we're not gonna get there yet, okay? Tonight he gets arrested. Last week, I would encourage you to go listen to last week if you missed it. It was on the Lord's Supper communion. And we reframed how the Lord's Supper isn't just a cup and some bread and a tradition, but there is deep history and deep meaning and how Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of Passover. So he's, in, he's, here, for, he's here for Passover. He has Passover meal, and ha there's four blessings in Passover. We, we need to go over these again for today's. Do you guys remember the four blessings? Yes, Daniel, we do, because we listen and hang on every word. And I love that about you guys. I could bring any one of you up here, even the introverts, and you would recite all four blessings. But I'm not gonna do that this morning. There were four blessings at this Passover meal that they've done for generations, for hundreds of years. Four blessings, and with each blessing came a, came a glass, a full cup of wine. And some of you, you just love this, this, this idea. And so four glasses of wine, four blessings, and you guys remember the first blessing? I'll bring you out. That's right, because we're talking about Passover and slavery in Egypt. And so this, this, this dinner goes back generations, and so they still drink the cup of, I will bring you out of slavery. And they will have their discussions and have their rituals and they will, they will discuss these things and drink the red wine and then they'll have another blessing, the cup of freedom. I will set you free and they'll drink that one. And remember, God brought them out of slavery but then had to set them free because God can bring you out of abuse and, and he can bring you out of a past and he can bring you out of your heart, he can bring you out of those things but he has to set your heart and mind free still. And so he doesn't just bring us out of slavery he sets us free. And they would drink that. And then they would have the Passover meal. And it's there where Jesus took the bread. And he was, supposed to give the, he was supposed to give the ancient Hebrew blessing over the bread. And he broke it. And he didn't give the blessing. He said, this is my body. Reframing the Lord's, the Lord's body. Reframing communion. This is my body broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. And then he gets to the third cup. The third, the cup of redemption, where God says, I will redeem you. And they had lifted this cup up for generations and always prayed the same prayer. And Jesus lifts it up and he says, this is my blood. Take this, drink for the forgiveness of sins. 
And he reframes all of these things, the cup of redemption. I just want to remind us, Jesus says, I am redemption, and God's in the redemption business, and he takes a past that haunts you and holds you and sometimes controls you, and he wants to set you free of that. He wants to give you peace and power in the present and hope in the future and freedom and forgiveness of your past. Come on. This is what he's in the business of is the redemption. It's not just giving you back, not just restoring, but going beyond that to redeeming, to giving you more. He says, I am redemption. I am the cup of redemption. And so we have three cups. I'll take you out. I'll set you free. I'll redeem you. And then there's the fourth blessing, the fourth cup of Passover. You will be mine and I will protect you. You are mine. This is the cup of protection. And remember the Passover meal, Jesus took the cup of protection and he did something interesting here. He didn't drink of it. He said, I will not drink of that until I am with you again in heaven. He's saying, I lay aside God's protection. I will drink the cup of redemption because I am redemption, but I will, I will not drink the cup of protection because this night, on this very night, he would be arrested and there will be no protection for him. He didn't come for protection. So he redefined for us the bread and the wine. You know, this, this moment with Jesus up in the upper room, Last Supper, communion, it's a beautiful moment. And it is perhaps the last beautiful moment we're going to have for a while. As we continue in the word, Jesus and the disciples finish up. And in Luke 22, it tells us they gather themselves and they cross over the Kidron Valley through where all the, the tombs would be. And they go to the Mount of Olives where they're staying. They have a place there. And near where they're staying is a garden. And you can imagine this night. Passover is always on the full moon of spring. So they're out there in this grove, in this garden. And the full moon is up. A bright night. They've just left the Passover. They've sung some hymns. And this night actually has a special name. It is Passover, but there's a special name for this night in particular that God instituted a tradition for his people. The night is called Le'il Shemarim in Hebrew. Le'il Shemarim. It means the night of watching. Because in Exodus 12, 42, God said this, it's a night of watching for God. And so on this night, all of Israel is to keep vigil to the Lord for generations to come. Le'il Shemarin, the night of watching. So on this night, the Hebrew tradition at the time was they would keep watch, keep vigil, and stay awake. Now the Gospels really round out what happens tonight in this, in this section. And so in Matthew 26, it says that Jesus went with his disciples to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he, did, he took Peter and James and John and he walked off and he immediately began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now that's a quick turn. Our Savior's been singing hymns and raising cups of glass and saying, I'm redemption. And he tells them to sit there on the Le'il Shimmerine, the night of watching, and he says, you three, come with me. And immediately something washes over him. And the Greek words here are interesting. The first one means to be immediately sorrowful. It, like, like thrown into sorrow. A sudden sorrow came over him. It, it, it hit him. A shocking realization washed over him. And the other word, the second word is far darker, far heavier on the heart. In fact, it means to be in internal agony, to have anguish. 
And so we can see here in the language and even in the story how he says, you guys sit here, you three come with me, and immediately was shocked with internal agony and anguish. Something hit him. Something was revealed to him. And the words here, when you put them together, it's a sudden realization followed by like a shaking, a shuddering, a gasping. I can only think of a, a, a word picture. I was trying to think of how to, to put this in our terms. And um, it's, it, this is like that, that late night phone call you get that there's been a tragedy in the family. Or when a police or military officer shows up to your door with news of tragedy. And it just washes over you, shocks you, and the agony is there. Something happened in Jesus' heart and mind that shocked him. A sudden sorrow, thrown into sorrow. This is how we find Jesus in the garden. He says to his disciples, the three disciples he's with, they've walked off and he turns to them and says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. My soul, the deepest part of me, feels so overwhelmed, I feel like I'm gonna die. Now this is a different word for sorrow than when it was even used above. This is that darkness that follows on the heels of the crushing realization. Now we've all experienced something in our life perhaps where you said, I'm so sad I could die. Oh, I could just, I could just die. We've had moments where, where we've gotten news and we have fallen on the ground and screamed into the carpet, fallen to our knees and cried. And Jesus, I can only imagine what he's going through here as something makes him feel like he is going to pass. And then he turns to the disciples and says, stay here and keep watch with me. Do you see why he would say that now? Le'il Shimmerin. It's the night of watching. Guys, will you, take, will you watch with me? We watch with me tonight. Now, I don't think he's just asking them to take part in the tradition to see what the Lord will do. I think he, in his humanity, was also wanted to know that his, his guys were with him, even just by staying up with them. Uh, guys, I'm struggling. I'm struggling here. Will you stay up with me? Uh, just please, just stay up and watch with me. The next verse says that he went a little farther beyond them. He, he, he left even them where he collapsed onto his face and prayed. So finally, the, the, the sorrow and the things he's going through here in Matthew 26, we see it causes him to collapse to his face. So we have, I feel like my soul is slipping away from me. I feel like my soul is gonna die. And when you have that kind of sorrow and it manifests in shuddering and shuddering and gasping and, and it begins to work its way through you, that internal agony, your knees give out sometimes, don't they? And he collapses and begins to pray. And what does he pray? It says this, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. May this cup be taken from me, but not my will, but yours. Father, take this cup from me. Then he goes back, he gets up, and he goes back to talk to or be comforted by his disciples, and they're already asleep. He had just told them, I'm about to die inside. Will you stay up and watch with me? And he finds them asleep, and you can just imagine the loneliness of our Savior in this vulnerable moment. Completely vulnerable. He is fully God. Jesus is fully God. 
He's fully man. And here we see his humanity on display as he is wrestling with these emotions. He goes back to his, his disciples, the three companions he was closest to and he spent every day with for three years. He goes back to them at his lowest moment and there they are, asleep. The loneliness he must have felt that they couldn't keep watch even one hour. And he says to them, he says, guys, wake up. Watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I wonder if he wasn't just saying that for them. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. He's saying, my, my spirit inside is fully God, and I will go through anything. My flesh right now is terrified of what lies before me. Guys, pray. Pray. He walks over a second time, and he prays, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He comes back and he finds them sleeping again. And this time he does not wake them up. He steps away for a third time and he prays the same thing, which would be my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. So he's prayed three times here. The first time, my father, if it's possible, take the cup from me. And the second one, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, then may your will be done. Now Luke's account, remember Luke's a doctor? Luke adds in um, some extra interesting tidbits. He was a physician, and in verse 44, he says, and being in agony, Jesus prayed even more earnestly, and, and his sweat was like the drops of blood, his sweat was drops of blood falling to the ground. And there's a name for this in science, hematidrosis. And hematidrosis is a condition where the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to bleed. They occur under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. Severe, severe mental agony activates the nervous system to invoke the fight or flight reaction to such a, degree, such a degree that the capillaries begin bursting in your body and you sweat out the blood. Listen, we've all had broken moments. We've all had moments where we've lost someone, something. And we find Jesus here with his body, his heart, his mind, his soul feels like he's dying. He's under the weight of something. And strangely, the strangest part of the story we always just glass over is why is he referring to this cup? God, take this cup from me. God, if it's impossible that I, I, can't, if I can't, this cup won't go away unless I drink it. Like, what's up with the cup? Mark 14 tells us this. It says, he says this, Abba, Father, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me. Abba is a term of endearment that means daddy. Daddy, take this cup from me. Daddy, everything's possible for you. Daddy, take this cup away from me. So Matthew, Mark, and, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is praying about this cup. And some of us have read over this our whole life. Oh, he's praying about a cup. We watched a movie. He mentions a cup. Okay, but it seems strange that our, at Jesus' lowest point in his life, where he is broken and stressed to the point of bleeding sweat, he prays about a cup. Anybody else ever thought this was weird? At his lowest moment, he chooses to be poetic. Take us this cup from me. 
Like, he, like why? Like what? He chooses a word symbol out of nowhere? It's almost like somebody read the original account and then like, oh, Jesus, that's way too honest. Let's insert, let's just cross out those two paragraphs and put cup in there. Take the cup from me. That'll sound much more symbolic and poetic. That'll be great. I mean, why didn't he just say, why did he just, why did he just not say, Daddy, I'm about to be arrested, humiliated, I'm going to be tortured, I'm going to be crucified and killed. Daddy, don't let that happen. Can I tell you why he didn't say that? Because that wasn't what he was worried about. I always thought Jesus sweat in the garden because he, didn't, he, he had foreknowledge that he was going to get cat of nine tails and, and the Passion of the Christ movie and all that stuff. I don't think so. This cup that he's talking about looms much larger than the physical pain. Now we've discussed the four cups already. I will take you out. I will set you free. I'll redeem you and you will be mine. But did you know in Passover there is a fifth cup? terrible cup. has a very interesting history, this cup. If you go back in the Old Testament, this cup is mentioned over and over and over. This cup is known as the cup of wrath. The cup of wrath holds the wine of God's judgment. And here are just a few verses that mention this in Psalm 75. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices, and he pours it out on the wicked of the earth. Drink it down to its very dregs. Ezekiel calls this the cup of ruin and desolation. Isaiah says it's the cup of trembling. And it was at this moment, right now here in this church service, you remembered why you don't want to go to church. I showed up on the cup of wrath day. I was hoping for the tithing sermon, but I got the cup of wrath. It's one or the other, right? Stick with me. I promise we're going somewhere. So the Hebrew in the Bible, the sages and the rabbis had all this debate about the cup. The cup's mentioned everywhere. What do we do with the cup? Where do we put the cup? How does the cup fit in Passover? Where do you put a cup of wrath in the Passover? After dessert, kids, gather around the cup of wrath. (laughs) An aperitif, a digestive, like where do you put this? You just do a shot. I mean, I don't know how much you want to do with this. Literally, we have it. They debated, how does it fit in the Passover? Where do we put it? Who drinks it? I'm not drinking that cup. Get Eliezer. He'll drink any wine. Like, who, who's going to drink the cup? What do we do with it? This is a real discussion. What do we do with the cup of wrath? Can I tell you, they didn't know what to do with it. They decided they did not know what to do with it. They, did, they knew it should be somewhere in the meal. They didn't know where. They didn't know what to do with it. And can I tell you something about God's wrath? As humans, we never know what to do with it. I want to say something. They said, I don't know what to do with this cup of wrath, and they got it right, because humankind doesn't know what to do with God's, right, with God's wrath. And anytime humankind picks up the wrath of God, that cup, and says, I think I know what to do with that, bad things are about to happen. There are churches who pick up the cup of wrath and go, I know what to do with that. Let's go pick at dead soldiers' funerals. That's not God's cup of wrath. When we as humanity pick up God's cup of wrath and think we know how it should get doled out and poured out, we're off track. 
there are certain churches and certain people who pick up this cup of wrath and go, I think there's certain races or certain genders or certain sins that are, I'm gonna single out. That's not God's cup of wrath. Nope. And there are people who take the cup of wrath and say, I know what to do with it. I think my ex-husband needs a lot of this. Or my ex-business partner, or the one that hurt me. I'm going to take vengeance upon myself. I'm going to take this cup. It's going to be mine, and I'm going to take it around, and I'm going to help them. I'm going to get them back over time. I'm going to call it karma, but that's just me doing bad things to them. Now, see, when we take the cup of wrath, and we think we know what to do with it, we're off. Can we be honest here? Uh, The church has become known as a place of judgment because we have taken this cup and thought that we know what to do with it. We've gotten this reputation. We, we think somehow that we know how God's going to pour out his wrath on certain people doing certain things in certain places in certain sins. And the church begins to think, now that sin over there, that gets a lot more judgment than this one over here. But can I tell you what's really just going on? What they're saying is, and what, people, what that is, is I think their sin is worse than my sin. <laughs> I think I'm going to be a little better here. You know, we, we could be cutting corners, we could be telling lies, we could be cheating on things, but, but heaven forbid I'm not having an affair. Or, 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 did you hear the gossip? Cindy's gay, and God's cup of wrath is just poised, ready to smite her. No, no, you let, this cup is not for us. Amen? Amen. If you are holding this cup, slowly put it down so no one sees. (laughs) On the other side, if we say, oh, I don't really like a vengeful God, I don't like a God who's judgmental. I just want to say, you know, we, as humans, we love justice. Did you know that? I don't know if you know this, but in the deepest part of who you are, you love justice. You really long for it. And when you see injustice, you get very angry at it. When we see somebody who's, who, who um, kidnaps or who molests or who rapes or murders, we want justice for that. When someone plows through protesters, we want justice When we see uh, innocent children starving to to death, we see the injustice. We are a people who have justice within us and we long for it, but justice comes with judgment. And we all want justice until the judgment is turned toward us. We want justice, but we don't feel comfortable when it comes to the judgment stuff, especially when it's divine of any kind of shape or form. This is such a complex issue. I don't have time to keep going into all the complexities of this, but I'll just say this. We have God's cup of wrath, and if we're all honest, we don't know what to do with it. And the Hebrew sages agreed. We don't know either. Let's let the one who is just and holy and all loving, let's let him handle that. Is that a deal? Can we do that? The rabbis still had to do something with the cup of wrath. They had to do something with it. And so... They didn't know what to do with it in Passover, but they also had this belief in these prophecies from the pro- about Elijah the prophet, that Elijah was gonna come back and he was gonna make things known. He was going to um, unveil the, the mysteries and, and point to the Messiah. And so they, they, they knew that Elijah would come and make things clear. And so every Passover, to this day included, if you go to a Seder, the door is open. You guys been to one of these? The door's open. You know why? In case Elijah decides to come that night. There's a chair pulled out that no one sits in, the chair reserved in case Elijah comes that night. And guess what's in front of that chair? A cup of wine. Now, over time, this has just become 
become known as Elijah's cup. When Elijah comes, he'll just want some wine. But the original intent that the Hebrew sages put it there, will put the cup of wine there, so when he comes on Passover, he'll tell us what to do with the cup. He'll, tell, he'll let us know. So it's Elijah's cup today, it's known as that, but this, thing, no mistake, this is the terrifying, terrible cup of wrath of God's judgment. And they don't know what to do with it, but when Elijah returns, when he comes before, G, when he, before the Messiah, he's gonna tell us what to do with it. Five cups of wine at the Passover. Jesus drank the first three. He passed on the cup of protection and then went to the garden. And I believe here in the garden, that night as he was praying, he came to a terrifying moment of clarity. You see, we believe Jesus was there sweating blood and trouble because he knew the physical torture he was going to go through, but it wasn't that. Something much more sinister than a whip and a cross was looming in the life of Jesus. I believe the, suttering, the, the sudden sorrow and the shuddering body, the gasping, prayer, the gasping prayers and the feeling like his, his soul was dying and the sweating of blood was from the understanding that the cup of wrath was before him. He left the Passover four cups and he came to that cup and the realization washed over him. Jesus didn't come to get tortured and killed. He came to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. He came to ransom and rescue you and standing between humanity and the divine was this cup. The cup of wrath. Do you know what's in this cup? This is a terrible cup. The cup of hell itself. The cup of God's wrath. And I believe that Jesus, when this sudden sorrow and he walked over and collapsed, I believe in that agony inside that he had, I believe he looked and saw the cup and he knew, I have to drink it. I have to drink this. And there in the garden as he wrestled with those and he, he sweat and he bled and if we had been there, when, as we, we would have heard him, Abba, Daddy, no. No, Daddy, don't make me drink that. Let this cup pass from me, please. Anything, Daddy, all things are possible for you. All things, take this cup from me. Daddy, don't make me drink the cup. Abba, take this cup from me. And then exhausted, not my will, but yours be done. And in Matthew, he whispers, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, then I will do it. And therein lies the entire reason that Jesus came. There is the gospel that the cup could not be taken away unless it was consumed. Somebody had to drink it. Jesus came to drink the cup of wrath so that you don't have to. If it's impossible for that cup to go away unless I drink it, I'll do it. Do you see why he wanted this cup to pass from him? But he prayed, your will be done. And he began to drink of the cup of wrath. And throughout the following night and the next day, he would be split open and bled and hung and nailed on a cross. And he drank the cup. And he drank the cup and said, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he finished it every drop and said, it is finished. It is finished. 
It is finished. He drank the terrible cup. But something beautiful happened. You see this cup of wrath? Today? It is empty. Jesus drank it. Every single drop. So that you don't have to. There is none left in the cup. What does this mean for us now? It means we have a Savior who did for us what we can never, ever do for ourselves. He became everything sinful so that we don't have to be judged by our sins. In Jesus and through Jesus, there is no judgment. That means that for those of you who define yourselves by your past still, you're trying to drink from a vintage that is obsolete. You're trying to to find dregs in a cup of wrath, and there are none. It's empty. Jesus doesn't want you judged by your past. You are forgiven. It's been poured out. You can live a life of freedom knowing that your Savior drank your judgment, and you don't have to. This is why the Bible says, from, you know, it keeps going, that you can enter his throne room again with confidence that there's no condemnation in Christ. There's no condemnation for those in Jesus. The cup is empty. And for those of you who don't have faith in Jesus yet, know this, know this. The beauty of Jesus is that he took upon himself the judgment of God so that you don't have to. And through faith in Jesus, there is no judgment and there is no wrath. Jesus' offer is eternal life, yes, but it's more than that. It's that there's, that there's forgiveness for your past and there's power and present in your, in your, in your present and that there is, is hope for your future and that there is no wrath in the cup. His offer is beautiful. The cup of wrath is empty and whenever Christians or churches go out there with a cup of judgment and they, and they say that this is wrath, it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. We are called to love God and love people. And doling out wrath on this world is not what he asked us to do. Amen. Amen. Jesus wouldn't say, hey, go to church so you can feel bad about what you've done. Go to new church. <laughs> Jesus would say, go to church and feel grateful for what I've done. He'd say, go to, don't go to church and, and drink the cup of judgment and shame. Go to church and drink the cup of redemption. Sing songs of praise. Come and celebrate that the cup is empty and the Savior is alive. So this morning, we're going to go into communion. And and a couple things. I want to remind you, we have an open table. We have the body, the symbol of the body of Christ here broken for us. And we have the, the symbol of the blood of Jesus. It's an open table, which means there's no class you have to go through to be, to be okay with, to do this. If you want to come and remember Jesus and his sacrifice and say, thank you, thank you, come and take the bread and take the, the juice and say, this is your body that was broken for me. And this is your cup of redemption that, that redeems my heart. And you take those. Now today, I'm going to leave this cup up here in the middle so that you will know and be reminded as you take communion that the cup of wrath is empty 
and you can take communion. Whatever, you know like when you go to worship or communion or something, you get there and all those, oh, listen, to what, remember what you've done? Oh, just this morning. Oh, you guys fought on the way to church. Oh, oh whatever it is. <laughs> you can take communion, you're good. You can take the communion of redemption because the cup of wrath is empty. If you are here today and you have prayer requests, I would come find one of us. If, and, and also this, listen, if you are here today and, uh, and you don't know Jesus personally, I would pray that you would begin a relationship with him. That you would say the, the courage and what Jesus showed, that he would take on all those things for me. I want Jesus. I want his sacrifice. I want him in my life. Well, just like my four and a half year old son, you can come pray with us. If you're here with somebody, you can ask them. You can come find Charlie or myself or my dad. We would love to pray with you and to begin you on this journey of following Jesus. But as we go into communion today, as we go into worship, I want us to do something. Let's have a somber moment as remembering Jesus in the garden, yelling out his, father na- his father's name, take communion out of gratitude. And church, may we worship and praise today, not because of the song, not because of your voice, not because of who's around you. May you put all that aside and may you worship a savior who gave his life so that you could be free. So Jesus, we thank you. King Jesus, you, there's no one like you. It's amazing the things that you've, you do for us and you're not done. In this room right now, Lord, I pray that you would translate any part of this, this, this morning to the hearts and minds of those who need you most. I pray that you would draw people to you. Oh, Jesus, you're so beautiful. Forgive us of, 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 of make, diminishing your glory for diminishing your sacrifice. And today as we take communion, we hold them up and we hold you up and we say, thank you. Thank you that you drank the fifth cup. Thank you that it's empty. And then we will praise you with our, all our heart. And everyone said, amen. amen.